welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. My name is Andy McClanahan and in this episode my guests and I will explore what the election of President Biden will mean for social work in the USA. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Margaret Weir, Wilson Professor of International and Public Affairs and Political Science at Brown University, and Mel Wilson, Senior Policy Consultant for Social Justice and Human Rights with the National Association of Social Workers. Margaret and Mel, how are you both doing? Great, thank you. How about yourself? I'm good, Mel. Thanks. Most people never ask me how I am, but I'm good. Thanks. (laughs) Yes. Great. I'm uh, I'm fine, and now I feel I should ask you, how are you? I'm still fine, Margaret. Thanks. This is I'm, I'm not used to this. I, I figure maybe Americans are more polite. Most people I'm interviewing are from the UK or Ireland. Um, yes. So, uh, and just just to give our listeners a bit of context, um, you guys are both in the states. Where, where Margaret, you're in Rhode Island, is that right? Yes, I'm in Providence, Rhode Island, where we had a tiny snowstorm yesterday, mostly sleet. Okay, and that's right up northeast, is that right? Yes, okay. between Boston and New York. Okay, lovely. And and Mel, your DC area. Yes, a little town called Clinton, Maryland, which is like 10 miles outside of D.C. Okay, great, great. Um, and how are things where you are right now? It's been a really unusual few weeks. How, how are you guys feeling? You know, I'll start, I mean, it's still hectic and kind of crazy. Um, just the whole issue, first of all, the elections of uh, November were exciting and we liked the outcome. And then we had this terrible incident that, insurgency on the Capitol that sort of told us that things are, are going to be still a struggle and that there's a battle. And I say battle in, in the in the metaphoric sense mm. uh, in front of us that, that there, there are folks who do continue to push back against social justice in a strong way, the emergence of white supremacy. And, and the, the fact that white supremacy has now become mainstream is very scary. So that incident it's more than an incident. It was a riot on, on Capitol Hill. It was something that was a wake-up call, I think, for all of us. Uh, but we're, we're charging ahead. I think we, as an, an association, we certainly want to be involved and connected with a lot of the coalitions and others who are gearing up to deal with what's ahead of, what's ahead of us. So all in all, you know, we're surviving. Thanks, Mel. And Margaret, geographically, you're a little bit further away from, you know, the centre of that, where Mel is. Um, how are things in Rhode Island? I would say things in Rhode Island are fine. I mean, I, I think there's a, a great relief that Trump is out of office. Um, but, you know, there are still, as Mel alluded to, there are still really strong supporters for Trump white supremacy, which is really now a kind of a mainstreamed into the Republican Party, and they show no signs of doing anything different. So it's kind of like we have this reprieve, but it's just a very, very toehold on to creating a more, a, a, a politics that has, is more dedicated to social justice and not dedicated to white supremacy. So we, we have a, a lot of repair to do and even to just begin to move forward. I mean, Trump, didn't he, he polled 70 million votes. That's not a repudiation of, of his four years. You know, there's a huge amount of support for him and that, that's genuinely worrying. In terms of the, the inauguration on the 20th of January, was that not a moment for hope? I mean, it's always the elections. To be honest, was a, is a moment and was a moment for hope. I mean, it was unexpected. It it did change the balance of power, which is really really critical. Uh, so that having the Biden uh, Harris uh, uh, team come in is is something that we can look forward to. That there are at least folks that we can work with, and the fact that the Senate and the House is under Democratic uh, rule, then. It, there is hope. Now, going back to the point is that we just need to leave it there is hope, but it's not in some grand reality 
of, of change and everything's going to be glorious. Uh, but certainly no one should, I don't think anybody should backtrack and say, hey, this is just something that happened. No, this was, it was really important because if we think about the opposite, the reverse, if Trump had gotten back in or if they had maintained the Senate, we would be really, really in a, in a bad place. So we're in a better place, I think. And a historic moment with um, Kamala Harris being elected as vice president. I remember, Mel, you and I spoke back in the summer. Uh, we were making the episode about Black Lives Matter. And uh, we were discussing during that the potential pre- vice presidential candidates. And at the time, Karen Bass, who's a member of the House of Representatives and a social worker, I believe, was on uh, the list of, con- of people being considered. Now, that would have been, from the profession's point of view, really fantastic. Um, but at the same yeah. time, you know, history has been made and that's incredibly welcome. I mean, things have moved so fast in recent weeks. I remember 6th of January, I was trying to set up this episode and I was on the phone to uh, Greg, the NASW communications manager, and I mentioned how well things seem to be going in the Georgia Senate runoff election. And then at 30 my time that evening, I emailed Margaret uh, to, to try to secure a date and was reflecting on the chaos at the Capitol. It's just been an absolutely bizarre time. And I think for people on this side of the Atlantic, it can seem, you know, it can seem kind of removed, you know, but... To, to think and reflect, if that was happening at Westminster, if that was a mob that stormed uh, stormed the Houses of Parliament, you know, people with, you know, armed and with cable ties, it, it's just, it's it's absolutely crazy. Um, and we're having this discussion, this is Tuesday the 2nd of February, and it's just after 3pm UK time, so just after 10am on the East Coast. And I, I'm aware that today is the deadline for Trump to file a response to his second impeachment charge. Um, so a lot could happen between now uh, and this episode being uploaded on Thursday. But what I want to do is I, I want to look at the months ahead. So just kind of forgetting about the, the immediate situation in terms of what's going on with Trump. I want to look at the months and years ahead under the new Biden administration. There's been a huge amount of column space and airtime used up in discussing the composition of President Biden's cabinet. It's been talked of as a very diverse cabinet. Um, I've heard some people refer to it as the most diverse cabinet in history. Um, maybe that can be clarified. But to what extent does the makeup of the cabinet reflect an intention to advance a progressive policy agenda? Yeah, I, th- I think the uh, cabinet appointments are important for signaling what kind of um, agenda the uh, the president will have. And so, you know, for example, his appointment uh, of um, Javier Becerra as the head of the uh, Health and Human Services, he was a really sharp um, attorney general in California, very strong in organizing other states' attorneys uh, to support the Affordable Care Act. Um, uh, and the the other uh, thing that I think is notable as you look across these cabinet appointments is that it's not only the people at the very top, but the people uh, a couple of rungs down who are critical for what actually gets implemented are very, very progressive. The people he's appointed to the Justice Department, uh, Vanita Gupta, who's number three in the Justice Department, very strong on civil rights. So I I have been pretty uh, impressed with the cabinet appointments. Many people who are coming in, uh, in the especially in these uh, positions just below the cabinet secretaries have been in advocacy groups or in think tanks that have been pushing forward progressive ideas. So those appointments are 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 very good. And, you know, it 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 seems different from what the image we had of Biden, say, eight or nine months ago before he became the candidate as just a sort of you know, mainstream in some kind of, I don't know, Bill Clinton way. Um, he's, this is much more progressive. Yes, because I'm looking back a few months, there was a huge amount of talk as, of Biden as a safe pair of hands, as somebody who wasn't really going to be pushing things particularly far forward. Mel, do you have any thoughts on the, the makeup of the cabinet? Yeah, actually, Martha picked up on something that was really important in, in uh, Justice Department. Of course, Merrick Gardner is going to be Attorney General. But the, the appointment of Benita Gupta, and also of uh, Kristen Clark, who was the head of the Lawyers Committee for 
civil rights and the law under the law and Benita Gupta. I know both of them organizationally. We worked very closely with the leadership conference that, that uh, Benita headed uh, and knew her actually when she was in the Obama uh, Justice Department. And as Margaret said, that there is an absolute strong commitment to not just progressive ideas, the whole issue of, of social justice within the Justice de Department, which as we know, it just under bar, it was just nothing. I mean, it's worse than nothing. So we can get a good turnaround and really looking at some of the issues that in civil rights spheres and issues around policing that you get well thought out plans working with the community, but also working with other uh, parts of that that uh, criminal justice spectrum. Uh, so I we feel very good about those appointments also. One last one too is the whole issue of the, the press secretary uh, and the change that's happened there that you know we're getting these uh, daily press briefings that disappeared under Trump. And just to see that kind of exchange, I think is important to the country. Yes, I, I, I remember seeing a BBC journalist, I think, refer to it as potentially a return to something which is actually a bit boring, you know, in terms of the last four years have just been so crazy. And he was talking about the press briefings. Um, Merrick Garland, he was um, he was Obama's choice for Supreme Court, isn't it? That right. And Mitch McConnell torpedoed that then in in in, um, in Congress. So that there's a nice there's something of a poetic justice to his appointment. Yeah. Yes. Um, Mel, then if we actually move on to talk about NASWA's um, social justice priorities, could you outline what those are then um, for the coming years? Yeah, and I hope I don't do it again and forget priorities. What, what NASW did, oh, I guess three, four, five years ago was develop what we call social justice priorities. And they're broad, uh, but, but sort of capture where organization we would like to be able to focus and put energy in. Uh, one is criminal justice. Uh, Second one is economic justice. One, the third is, is political justice, uh, and that incorporates issues around court, court appointments, uh, voting rights, those kinds of things under political justice. We included environmental uh, justice, and also I think the last one is immigration. We sort of have a sixth one, which is the issue of health equity, uh, because that, sort of intersects with almost everything. And this overarching notion of intersection of racial justice. We don't specifically talk about racial justice as a social justice issue because we think that's part and parcel to all social justice right now. So, but those are the five that we, uh, or I guess we call it six that we uh, focus on and, and certainly try to build some policies around. Okay, that's great. So let's talk first of all about health equity then. That's the one you finished with. That's the one I want to start with. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic has shone a, a light on what are really glaring racial injustices in terms of healthcare provision in the States. There's a clear need to address gaps in healthcare coverage, um, particularly I think in relation to mental health. With that in mind, to what extent, Mel, do you expect President Biden's plans to reform healthcare provision? To what extent do you expect them to succeed in addressing the gaps? Well, that's a good question. You see, addressing the gaps, that's, that's, they're going to move in that direction. There's going to be a re-commitment re, um, to the Affordable Care Act, for instance, and trying to get health uh, coverage to uh, vulnerable populations. Within the context of COVID, certainly the package, I think you're going to talk, may talk we may talk about that later, but the package that uh, he's uh, proposing now, the $1.9 trillion, I think it is, uh, it's something that's really important. It's a strong commitment in there towards uh, healthcare for for uh, those who are struggling and those who are vulnerable. And traditionally, those who have been left out in terms of health disparities. That's Hispanic, African Americans, and Native Americans. Uh, and there, I, there is a commitment. I sort of hesitate a little bit to say and address the gaps because the gaps are, are, are enormous, and sure. it's going to be a long term time and certainly requires a lot of work with the other side, with the Republicans and, and with the community to not only identify the, the gas, but get getting public support around it. But I do think that the direction that they're taking uh, around COVID uh, is the right one. There's a huge concern now around the vac vaccines and getting uh, those vaccines out to folks and getting, uh, especially the black community, really 
to buy in to taking the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And is that a problem? Is that is that a problem? Yes, there, there. I forget the percentage, but it's black community is the lowest percentage from polls uh, who say they're they're willing to take the, the vaccine. And what's that about? Is that about lack of you know understandable a lack of trust in government? Yeah. Well, it goes back to the whole issue of health disparities and health equity. That yeah, you know, we we need to say that when we talk about these disparities and equities, COVID just exposed what already existed. Yeah, so that goes back historically within. Black, brown, and, and the Native community, where that those programs generally did not benefit our communities, and there's suspiciousness about first of all intent. There's a historical thing within the Black community about being used as guinea pigs and drug experiments many years ago, and some of that really sticks in the community. But that's the big distrust that first of all. Does this really is this really going to benefit us? Or if we take this and this thing doesn't work, do we wind up losing again? That kind yes, of yes. thinking on it. So that's a lot of energy has to be poured into working with the black community and, and really convincing the community that first of all the, the vaccines do work and that the impact economically of COVID right now is so devastating to our communities. We have to not only deal with the health side of it, we got to deal with the economic side of it. So by doing something to manage the disease and, and, and get rid of the disease is important and coming upon the black community to, to buy into to taking the vaccines. And Mel, is there a social work role in promoting the, you know, the uptake of the vaccines? Is that something that social workers would actively be doing with their service users? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not part of a treatment plan or anything. One of the the, the ways of prevention within, again, health disparities across the board is that if a social worker or a doctor or a nurse, if you were to have the face-to-face contact on a regular basis with those who are designated, either dealing with health disparities or vulnerable populations, we are advised and we do speak to them about, hey, do you know that you can take this vaccine that's really going to be not only helpful to your health and prevent you know, the, the tragedies in your family also deal with you. So we do that as a matter of course. And part, a lot of prevention programs actually reach out to social workers. Uh, gun violence is a really good example where there is a, a active uh, inclusion of social workers and psychologists and psychiatrists that if you had that first contact, it's nothing wrong with advising. You don't coerce, but you advise and, and, and point out the benefits to participate in these kinds of programs. Thanks, Mel. Margaret, if we stay on the, the issue of healthcare and healthcare disparity, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand when Bernie Sanders was, you know, running in the primaries, one of his um, policies that he was he was um, backing was the introduction of universal healthcare. So coming from the UK, um, we have the National Health Service. You, um, healthcare is free at the point of need. It's paid for through taxation. It's one of those things that I always find very, very hard to get my head around why there is not more support for universal health care provision in the States. You know, how far is what Biden's um, promoting in terms of health care? Um, how far is that away from what we would have here in the UK? Well, let me say one thing that there actually is support for uh, universal health care in the United States. It's just every time legislation is introduced fears about what it means for people who already have health care get aroused and the all of the interest groups around what already exists. So that's that's a, a something that there's hopes are raised because public opinion polls show how many people agree to it. What will Biden be able to do? Um, I think for all the talk and dispute among the Democratic candidates around universal health care and health care for all, with the kind of Congress that he has, uh, it's going to be quite limited what he can do. I think, you know, the things that he had proposed were lowering the age of Medicare, which would be like health care for all, to 60. Uh, and he had other kinds of things that were going to be broader. But I think what he's really going to be able to do is plug some of the holes in uh, the Affordable Care Act, and those were holes that the Trump administration deliberately opened up. So one of the things, and, and he Biden has already moved on this, one of the things that Trump did 
was to slash the funds for the people that market the um, uh, health exchanges so that people actually take up the health care that exists. So he's restoring that money. I think the Democrats will be able to change the subsidies that people use to buy health care on the exchanges so that they become more generous, which then becomes a way for more people to get um, to get health care. Um, and hopefully they can do something uh, around eliminating the work requirements for Medicaid. And this is one of the most destructive and sort of mean-spirited things, I think, that uh, the states that expanded their Medicaid that were red states did was to establish work requirements for Medicaid. So if they could do some of those things, it would be an improvement. But I think unless the Congress uh, changes dramatically, which it's not going to, they are going to be limited to finding these kind of smaller measures, which nonetheless may have important impacts. Thank you, Margaret. Um, can we move on, um, Mel? You mentioned criminal justice um, as, a, as a social justice priority for NASW. 2020, last year, saw the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And that's something we spoke about previously. And if listeners would like to know more about that episode, you can go back and find it in our uh, in our series. Um, NASW has highlighted the need to tackle structural and institutional racism, including specifically the issue of police reform. Now, as I understand, President Biden has promised to set up a national police oversight body to assist in reforming police departments, and that's something he's planning to do in the first 100 days in office. Is that enough of a step forward in addressing the inequalities which are rife in terms of policing in the state's smell? And, and if not, what more needs to be done? You know, we've participated, we mean NASW, with a couple of big coalitions around police reform. One is, is uh, the Justice Roundtable, it's called. The other one is the uh, Leadership Conference uh, Policing Reform Task Force. Within there, there's kind of a disappointment in the idea of the, it's the commission that uh, Biden is proposing to develop a, a police reform commission. And for obvious reasons, the notion of a commission sometimes is seen as a way of sort of pushing the problem to the side. Uh, and so there is much more energy and pushing the administration, first of all, to get behind the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act uh, and, and making sure that that gets passed. And then also coming up with a lot of work in the community around very specific uh, concerns. One, one of them, for instance, there are a number of bills out there uh, dealing with uh, issues around access, for instance, to health care. Uh, there's something called the Medicaid uh, Reentry Act very, not very well known bill, but very critical to reform because it allows individuals who are incarcerated to begin to receive Medicaid while they're incarcerated and, and transitioning back in the community that can address some of the mental health and physical health things and create continuity of care. That's kind of, that's kind of specific kinds of uh, changes that need to happen on the broader, I guess, uh, system-wide. Just addressing the issue of continued racism within law enforcement. That has not gone away. And that goes into what the federal government can do, but then what happens at that local level and beginning really pushing towards that whole idea of reimagining policing. I know that a lot of discussion about abolition of policing and I'm not gonna necessarily get into the back and forth on that, but there's kind of a consensus towards the need to reimagine policing that, that gets into having police, first of all, looking at their budgets and being able to shift budgets to other services, but also getting commitments from local police departments that they have to take an approach and really do some internal restructuring to address that systemic racism that continues to exist. So that's another area where there's hope, but certainly no one is relaxing saying, okay, we really made this move what Black Lives matter has done is awaken everyone, but it's the rest of us that have to really get behind making sure that these things happen. I don't know the data on this. I read something very recently about since that discussion happened, the number of local police departments that actually initiated and implemented reforms is relatively low. Uh, a lot of folks made commitments to look at it. Not that many have really put in the structures that talk about those reforms and put them in, make them real. 
uh, within their community. So that's the kind of work that has to happen. Biden is definitely going to be in that conversation, but there is a disappointment around the idea of a, of a commission as the main focal point for addressing it. The, 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 the power of some of the police unions as well seems quite worrying. Now, I'm a big advocate of trade unions in terms of advocating on behalf of workers' rights. And, you know, that kind of goes without saying in a role like mine. But I read a story over the weekend. It was a, about an incident in Rochester in New York where there's a nine-year-old girl was um, pepper sprayed by the cops. And I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if there's any racial elements to that at all. But there's a nine-year-old girl was pepper sprayed by the cops and put in the back of a police car. I think she was actually sprayed in the back of the police car. And the, the spokesperson for the, the union defended it and said, you don't know what would have happened if we hadn't done that. That is just mind-blowing that that happens. And first of all, that happens. And second of all, that anybody seeks to justify it. And I know in the wake of George Floyd's murder as well, there was some, you know, pretty kind of concerning stuff coming out from the police union. We actually put a statement out just this morning on that. We talked to our chapter ED in uh, um, some blank, you know, in New York, New York State. Um, and just talked about that. Opposition is, is a couple of things. First of all, it goes back to what I just said about the need for systemic changes uh, in policing in terms of use of force and having national standards, especially when there's a minor involved, when there's a child involved, there are no national use of force standards. In this case, it wasn't very clear what the parameters the police had to use pepper spray and handcuffs. Which are, of course, yes, handcuffs. I forgot that. Yeah, right. And that it varies from state to state. I know if in the uh, juvenile justice system there are very stringent rules about use uses of restraints, but there needs to be a much broader national standards, which is, I believe, in the uh, George Floyd uh, Justice and Policing Act, that talks about uh, the, these kinds of encounters and speaks very specifically. To, to children. The second piece of that is something that's, and it's really social work specific in a way, the transformation of 911 response systems. I don't know if you read the story about what happened in Rochester, but they had actually implemented a reform. They really created a mental health crisis response that didn't require the police. They were, this system was that the police were to contact them. They would do the, uh, crisis response and do the intervention with, you know, with parameters and caveats and all those things. Whatever reason, that didn't get triggered in this case. But what we say in our statement, okay, fine, but at least they have something. Now they really got to obey in the rest of the country. This demonstrates the need for this transformation of 911 response. There's also a suicide piece to this incident. And there's another transformation called the 988 system, which is suicide crisis hotlines, and that making them standardized and national, and then at some point merging all these systems so that you reduce the number of encounters that include uniformed police officers who are not trained or geared to respond to it. And that's what came out of that. That's the first thing that stood out to me. I'm just thinking during the congressional campaigns and also the presidential campaign, there was criticism, you know, there was debate within the Democratic Party as to whether or not that um, support for Black Lives Matter or support for calls to defund the police actually helped or if they hindered support for um, the party. And I know that's something which is continuing to be a bit of a battle internally. Um, Margaret, um, Structural racism, that's not only a feature of policing, though, you know, it manifests itself in many ways in terms of housing. We've covered healthcare, you know, education as well. I believe that housing is something that you're pretty well qualified to speak about. How hopeful are you that the new Biden administration will address racial inequality in society more widely? And perhaps we could touch on that, that point about housing, first of all. Well, on, on housing, you know, the patterns of racial segregation and poor housing are centuries old in the United States. And um, despite the passage of the Fair Housing Act and a few days after Martin Luther King was assassinated, uh, very little has been done to enforce fair housing. Um, the Obama administration implemented a rule to try to enforce fair housing. It was called uh, Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing. And this, uh, this is language from the, the law that is 50 years old. And all it required 
was for local governments to collect data and talk about, are they promoting fair housing? Are they building housing that is affordable in places of opportunity? And it became incredibly controversial. This is what Trump uh, kept saying, that Obama had declared war on the suburbs. So these are very, very difficult issues to move forward on. There's a couple of things that Biden has said he will do, and if he can do some of them, they would be very important. One of them would be to expand housing choice vouchers to everyone who's eligible for them. These are uh, uh, vouchers that give people uh, the ability to rent in the private market. And right now, uh, only about a quarter of the people who are eligible for them get them. Uh, which means that uh, a lot of people who need housing don't have any opportunity. There's many flaws with the program in terms of can people use them in areas of opportunity, but there's also a lot of room for improvement in that program. And if if Biden were to really push on that, as as he said, and they might be able to get an expansion through with just a majority, that could be something that could expand opportunities and begin, and I emphasize begin, to address these uh, issues and racial segregation and, and, and lack of opportunity to housing. The, uh, the other thing in this regard is regard to the pandemic is just extending these protections on evictions. The evictions are just a horror in terms of people losing their homes in the middle of uh, a pandemic. And we've had this huge issue with, um, with evictions uh, even prior to the pandemic. So stabilizing people's, uh, people's you know, right to some kind of decent housing we're far from it, but I think Biden will be able to take some steps in that regard. We're just looking back to the former President Trump. I mean, racial bias and segregation in the housing provision quite literally ran in the family for, for Trump in terms of his father's practices. So, yes, no surprise. Um, the apple didn't fall very far from the tree. Um, President Biden, I did say we're going to talk about the future. Let's not talk too much about the past. Um, President Biden, he's announced um, a $1.9 trillion stimulus plan for the US economy. It's a, you know, it's a vast amount of money. I'd read some analysis by Columbia University's Centre on Poverty and Social Policy, which suggests that the plan could cut the rate of child poverty by over 50% and reduce poverty rates for African Americans by 34% and, Hisp and Hispanic Americans by 39%. And I know, I know the President just yesterday engaged in lengthy discussions with a group of 10 Republican senators, and I think the group was headed, seemingly headed by Senator Susan Collins from Maine uh, and also included Mitt Romney from Utah, um, in an apparent attempt to, to you know, really forge forward with a, a bipartisan approach to um, the, the stimulus plan. From what I understand, the Republican, that group of Republican senators, the, the plan, the counter proposal they're making is for about a third of that amount of money. So it's, it's an awful, awful lot less. Um, before we get into actually talking about the plan, a huge amount has been said about Biden's um, desire to pursue a bipartisan approach in his, his term in office. Do you see that as being something he's going to succeed in doing? Yeah, that's interesting. One of the things that come up, people's perception of Biden before he became president was that he's going to really get wedded to this whole issue of bipartisanism. And certainly the progressive side of, of the Democratic Party is like, angry about that. <laughs> Please don't do that because it's not been very successful and will get used again by the Republicans. But there's a sense now that he's maybe not going to do that, that that in this whole issue around the, the COVID package that they sounded committed to doing the uh, reconciliation option, which says that we will talk to you, try to get to a meeting's mind. If we don't do that, then we're going to use that maneuver to to get the, the package passed. Yes. That's a strong stance, and hopefully he will take that yes. stance. I mean, my understanding, and, and please, um, maybe Margaret, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that the desire to get those 10 Republican senators on board was, was it in some way to avoid a filibuster in the Senate? Is that, is that, is that, is that what the approach he was taking there? I mean, I know that it can be pursued, as Mel was saying, just by the Democrats in, in Senate. 
I think it was an initiative on the part of these Republicans to show that they had 10 of them. They could overcome the filibuster with this very um, meager package compared to what Biden is pushing. And one thing I would say is that, you know, Biden should think about bipartisanship and claim bipartisanship in the sense that a majority, vast majority of Americans support this uh, very ambitious uh, bill or, you know, generous broad bill because the pandemic has been so um, miserable and the impact it's had on people. And the other thing, I just saw a letter signed by a bunch of um, mayors, including Republican mayors, who are very supportive of it. So this is this is the game that's been played by Republicans in Congress of disagreeing, of, of bargaining down whatever it is Democrats try to do so that it's less effective, and then they get blamed for it in the next election. So I think the thing seems to be this time around, Democrats feel like we already did that 10 years ago under Obama. And so I, I, I think, uh, and I would be surprised if, if they give in to um, this proposal on the part of Republicans. This is too far away from their package. It's actually interesting that the governor of uh, West Virginia, and West Virginia went like 70% Trump in the last election, but he is solidly behind going big, as they're calling it with this package. So to Marcus' point, a lot of, of Republican state and local politicians, they, they see the value of, of, of the bigger package. I mean, the huge division in American politics, it's, it's not unique to American politics. UK politics, you know, there's, there's huge division here as well, not least over Brexit. You know, Brexit is done. You know, the UK has left the EU, but that has caused massive rift. You know, you're either a Remainer or you're a Brexiteer. Is there anything to be said about pursuing bipartisanship just for the sake of having a more healthy partnership approach to making policy? Is there anything to be said at all for bipartisanship just because it shows a more mature approach, a less tit-for-tat approach? Or am I, am I incredibly naive? Just tell me I'm naive, Mel, if I am. Well, I'll say really quickly, there is value in it. I, we do a lot of stuff on other bills. I mentioned a bill earlier today about the Medicaid bill. You, you do try to get Republicans to support those kinds of things because that helps to get it into law. And that's the objective. And there, there are times when you do have to go. That doesn't always mean that you throw away your values. You really try to seek out uh, those folks on the other side who may, if there's not identical values, certainly lean towards the direction you want to go with a certain, or point out the benefit that a bill may have to to their values or some of their, their legislative agenda. So quick answer, yes, there, there are times that you really want to have bipartisan support. You know, and there was bipartisan support for some of the criminal justice reforms right. that limited the sentencing. That was an example where sort of the right was tired of paying for prisons. The Koch brothers were, who are, you know, right-wing funders, uh, uh, supported these initiatives in part because they don't like government spending, and then so there was there there so there are a few areas, but on some of these big things like you know, spending and taxes, where the two parties are far apart, uh, I think it's much harder to have bipartisan agreement. Thanks, Margaret. Um, and if we could just move on to discussing the stimulus package itself, short term and long term. How successful do you expect the the new administration is going to be in terms of addressing poverty? Um, you know the, the the gap in income gap in American society is 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 vast. Um, it's a huge it's a huge task to even begin trying to address that. Margaret, do you have any thoughts on the the president's approach? Well, I, the one piece of it that uh, I think does have some possibility for becoming permanent is the child tax credit. And uh, making there is no child benefit in the United States. There is something of a that works through the tax system, but it's small and it's got um, it's got uh, exclusions to it. And uh, members of um, uh, of Congress have been pushing an expansion of this child tax credit that would be much more like a child uh, a child uh, benefit. And um, that's in this stimulus package. And the question is whether they can take that and make it permanent. And think they can do it with just 50%. 
And that is something that you should be able to get some kind of Republican support for. Uh, so that's the piece of it that I think I'm the most hopeful about in terms of a poverty reducing agenda that goes into the future. Yeah, I just was going to sort of uh, add to what Mark was saying in terms of what's in there. The one I think, and probably may not stay, but the, the increase of the minimum wage mm-hmm. uh, is really critical. Uh, and to, to your point, what will actually create a change uh, that's long term, an impact on, on poverty? Uh, we're talking about $15 an hour, which is not, you know, you don't get rich on that, but you certainly, it, it raises to the point where you lean and help people get towards self-sufficiency. Uh, there's going to be pushback, tremendous pushback from the Republicans on minimum wage. That's been one of this, their, they've been against this forever. And, but going back to that appropriations and using reconciliation, that just getting 51% of, of the vote on that, you can possibly get that to stay. And I think hopefully Biden will fight for minimum wage to stay in that package. Who's the senator? Um, who's the Democrat? Is it a West Virginian Democrat who is, if you were to put him on a, a plot him on a map, you'd probably say he was more Republican in terms of some of his, didn't he, he shot the, the bill, the climate bill with a gun and stuff. Who's that guy? His name's escaped me. Manchin. Yeah, Joe Manchin. Okay. Because, yeah, so a lot of, a lot's been spoken about how the Democrats now have control of the Senate, but there are going to be some very, very powerful senators who are going to be able to leverage an awful lot of influence. And I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking then also in terms of the bipartisanship approach, there's going to be a need to, to reach out to some more of those, sorry, some of those more moderate Republicans. I don't know if Susan Collins typifies that group um, because, yeah, there's going to be 50-50 you know, split, split plus the, the vice president's vote. It's not, it's not a strong position to be in. Right. Um, and midterms as well, don't, don't, the, the, the governing party tends to lose um, seats at the, at, the, at the first midterm. That's, that's historically the way it plays out. I would say something about the midterms. Uh, You know, the Democrats are aware of this. I think they are in better shape for contesting the midterms, but they have a very thin margin. The other thing that is worth noting is that a number of blue states are uh, slated to lose representatives in the next round of uh, redistricting after the um, after the new census numbers come out, Rhode Island, for example, will lose uh, a seat. New York, uh, uh, Illinois will probably lose a seat. And those seats are going to go to um, uh, those seats are going to go to red states that will are governed by Republican majorities who can gerrymander them. So the Democrats control over Congress really kind of hangs by a thread right now. And there's a bigger question about, I mean, I understand the American system. I understand how, you know, two seats per state for the Senate. Um, you know, I understand the Electoral College, uh, how that works. And that is the system. That's the system as it was designed. But there is, you know, there's the argument that it is in some ways anti-democratic because the small states tend to be Republican. The big states tend to be Democrat. So um, that means Republican influence in the Senate tends to be greater. Is, is, that, is that anything that can ever be addressed within the current system? Or is that basically just a, a built-in aspect that's never going to change? Yeah, I mean, talk about Electoral College, I mean... I don't think it's going to be changed. There's a lot of folks who, who will push for it, but I, I don't think they have even enough Democrats to to really. Uh, I think they have to have to have a constitutional amendment to do that. Uh, so I don't know if that's, that's going to happen. Margaret, what do you think? I think it's really hard to change the electoral college. It's just there's too many states that benefit from it. I I think what has to happen is. Part of what happened in this last election and what happened in Georgia to flip Georgia, that there needs to be tremendous grassroots organizing on whether it can be funded through small dollar donations, which Democrats do seem to have done a better job on. I mean, they actually began to uh, um, outdo the Republicans in terms of the money advantage in the last election. And some of it was big, big dollars, um, but some of it was small dollar donations. And whether they can build these organizations like Stacey Abrams did in Georgia and different groups in um, Arizona 
that basically are on the ground from now until the election, they need to build more of that in places like Texas to really make a difference. Yes, yes. Yeah, quickly on what Marcus said, because there's a bill out there, it's, it's a priority bill, it's called For the People Act. Uh, it's HR1, now it's in the Senate, so it's S1. That's a comprehensive election reform. And Margaret touched on the issue of money in politics. And one of the pieces in that bill is to get rid of dark money and undisclosed donations by big corporations. But it also has a lot of sections dealing with voter suppression and in gerrymandering, just the whole nine yards. It's getting to that equal playing field in the midterm because that ability to suppress votes, to eliminate uh, access to the ballot is the really critical piece to maintaining the majority. The bill has a chance of passing with, with the majority uh, uh, Congress now and with the support of the White House. Um, we can come on to that then in terms of voter suppression, um, Mel, because I know that was one of uh, the, the priorities that we discussed earlier. Um, you know, in the build up to the recent election, Trump stoked fears of voter fraud. And then he propagated the baseless claims that the election was stolen. And that certainly doesn't seem to be something he's giving up on ever. Um, however, you know, that's all that's all a lie. Voter suppression, it's a very real problem. Uh, we know that black Americans are four times as likely as white Americans to report facing racial discrimination during the electoral process. Um, we know that Latinos are three times as likely and Native Americans are twice as likely to report the same. And among the most detrimental suppression measures are voter purging, um, strict identification requirements, and felony disenfranchisement. Um, has Biden given any indication of an intention to, to address voter suppression over the next four years? Because it's going to be a problem again. Yeah, I mean, he's supporting, he's supporting, I think the White House is supporting H.R. 1. Part of H.R. 1, by the way, I think has been included the whole issue of voter restoration, which deals with the felon disenfranchisement on the bill that really speaks to I think it was a standalone bill that they may incorporate into the larger bill that begins to address that piece because that gets into purging voter rolls, all those things. So there is certainly a commitment and energy around eliminating all those voter suppression kind of techniques. The biggest piece of this is the John Lewis voter, oh God, I forget the name of the bill, a Voter Advancement Act, which is S4, I believe, or HR4. Uh, that one gets into what the gutting of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and allows yes. for the, the dealing with states who have a history of, of, uh, of voter suppression and allows for intervention. And is that the piece of legislation when critical aspects of it were invalidated? Ruth Bader Ginsburg used the analogy that it was like throwing away your umbrella during a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Was that the Voter Rights Act? I, I don't. I didn't hear that, so I'll turn that over to Margaret. Maybe. <laughs> I can't remember if that's if that's how she referred to it, but it's the uh, Shelby v. Holder was the case where they uh, basically released states that had a history, a long history of racial uh, discrimination in voting and voter suppression. They released them from federal oversight. And they immediately went back and, in, and enacted all these uh, laws to limit the voting that would particularly hit African-Americans. So um, if she did say it, it she was right. <laughs> and you mentioned, Jerry, you, I think she was right about it a lot, wasn't she? Um, you mentioned gerrymandering. Um, Margaret, uh, that, is that a problem? Is that a problem in the States at the moment? Oh, it's a huge problem in the states. You know, a few states have enacted um, remedies to that that have helped. They, they've they turned over districting. I think Michigan did it, California did it, uh, turned over districting to um, um, uh, committees that are sort of neutral committees that do it rather than being done in the legislature. But um, places like Texas, they are just, geniuses at stuffing every Democrat they can into a uh, uh, a district and uh, letting the rest uh, be very, very strongly for, you know, enough, setting it up so you have enough people so that they have Republican majorities. I don't have anything intelligent to say about that other than I just can't understand that that happens and that's considered legal. It just, it's mind-blowing. 
but it, it obviously happens. Yeah. And what and what can be done about that? What can be done to fix that? I was going to say the Supreme Court kind of passed on an opportunity to uh, outlaw political gerrymandering. Um, outright racial gerrymandering can be contested, but it's not. You can't get enough. Uh, you can't change the practices enough through just challenging racial gerrymandering. So there were challenges, in fact, to the Texas uh, legislative um, seats on the basis that they disenfranchised Latino voters. And they did succeed in getting one dis- they getting some changes in their districts. But that was legislation that went on for like 10 years. Uh, so I'm sure there'll be a whole new round of court cases again after this next round of census redistricting. So I, I come from Northern Ireland. Um, in Northern Ireland, historically, gerrymandering was a problem. But historically, it was a problem. That's why I kind of, it, it seems, I kind of find it so hard to kind of get my head around that it's still happening, you know, elsewhere. Especially, you know, especially when America is held up as, you know, the example of democracy globally. It's very sad that there are problems like that that still need to be addressed. One of the things, you know, that I would say is that we're in the situation in the United States now where a majority of Americans uh, support the policies of the Democrats propose, most of the policies. You know, uh, Florida voted for Trump, but at the same time they voted for the $15 minimum wage. And Democrats are unfavorably situated geographically. We're kind of they are kind of packed into uh, metropolitan districts. And so it's just, it's a, it's a kind of a fluke of our geography right now that we have this uh, situation where the Republican strategy to hold on to power is to use every tool they can to limit voting and maximize their, any geographic advantage that they have. And then there's also the issues around the Supreme Court. So in terms of um, Trump having his three nominations, I mean, it's my understanding, Mitch McConnell, you know, leading um, the Republicans in Congress, you know, he's, he, he used Trump's presidency as an opportunity to stack the court. So even if the Republicans were to fare badly electorally in the coming years, they still essentially have the Supreme Court um, for a generation to come. Well, I'll say something on that. There's, there, that not, it's not as bleak as that. Okay. I, we also participate in the courts uh, matter that there are the number of retirements that, that justices in, in the uh, district and, uh, and the um, uh, circuit courts, they didn't retire because Trump was in office. Now there's an anticipation that there's going to be a lot more retirements of judges, which gives an opportunity for Biden to appoint folks to, to the bench. And also if there's a vacancy on the court, Supreme court, which is, nothing to say that won't happen, that, that that's another opportunity. The figure I was reading last night that jumped out to me was that the Republicans have nominated 15 of the last 20 Supreme Court uh, justices, which I hadn't had any idea about, but that's pretty stark. And I know it, it often is to do with just how the, you know, um, the cards fall, but, you know, there was obviously the big issue around Merrick Garland and how Obama was denied that, that opportunity as well. Um, if we move on, can we chat about immigration? I know that this has been, you know, a massive issue under Trump's presidency. We witnessed, you know, increases in the aggressiveness of U.S. immigration policy. Highlights, you know, of 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 that um, aggressiveness were the the Muslim the travel ban from majority Muslim countries, and also the the horrific um, um, policy of separating children and parents migrating illegally across the U.S. Mexican border. Now, I know among other measures, Biden has overturned the travel ban by executive order and he intends to send a bill to Congress laying out a pathway to citizenship for over 11 million undocumented immigrants. Um, It's also reported, I was reading today, that um, Biden intends to order a major review of asylum processing at the US-Mexico border and also to create a task force to reunite separated families. Do these steps go far enough to address the injustices that have been perpetrated um, or does more need to be done? I think it's uh, certainly a start. Um, There has been so much inhumane application of uh, rules 
that uh, just beginning to unravel them is going to take a lot of the Biden administration's time. Um, you know, and he, he um, halted a, a deportation of people who are see- asylum seekers in the country, uh, but, a, but a federal judge uh, blocked that, and it is being contested by uh, Republican um, states, uh, states' attorneys. So I think his, um, his immigration agenda is going to get a lot of legal pushback on the part of Republican politicians. And it's interesting because, you know, when, the Bush, when, when George W. Bush was president, he was pro-immigration reform. Uh, Republicans used to have a, a, a pretty, you know, and I, it, it seemed like there could have been some kind of bipartisan agreement. And, and um, Biden is proposing that kind of reform that keeps being proposed over the last 30 years. But I think the Republican Party, the base, has become so anti-immigrant that you get these state officials who are going to, I think they're going to fight what he tries to do on immigration every step of the way. Yeah, I agree with that. One of the things that a lot of the advocates are saying is that the executive orders are fine, but you know executive orders are executive orders of the next administration can simply overturn it. So there has to be a constitution, I mean constitution, comprehensive immigration reform. And again, to, to Margaret's point, that, that's, that's a lot of work uh, that you can get a consensus. I mean, immigration is so complex. Yes. Uh, you're dealing with DACA, you're dealing with family separation, you're dealing with a lot of policy things. Uh, to get that comprehensive immigration reform is, is critical because it has the long-term impact. I think today that the administration is going to do another executive order on what's called public charge, which allows um, those, those have immigration status to access some types of social services. Now they're barred from doing that, especially in, in the era of COVID, it's really important. So I don't know the language of the um, of the executive order, but some of the emails I've been getting that they anticipate that will come out today. Uh, there's also, I need to mention, I think it's important to mention, the whole issue of black immigrants is becoming a very important piece to the discussion. And those under uh, temporary protective status, and as many knows that you can get that status if you're from a country where maybe war issues, some very serious threats to self and, and to family, able to come in on a refugee, but on a temporary basis. Haiti, a number of other countries, I believe, uh, Cameroon, I, I can won't remember all the countries, but a lot of them are in Black Africa or in the Caribbean, and that uh, their that status is, is expiring for a lot of these folks. And so there's a big fight now to get the administration to do either an executive order to certainly extend their stay and, and prevent deportations of them. The black immigrant advocacy world is growing and really had gained a very, very loud voice in that discussion. Uh, and that also goes back to the travel bans and, and, and those kinds of rules that are out there. So you do have a lot of strong advocacy going on, but what they are all saying that you need to have that comprehensive immigration reform. Thanks, Mel. And just if anyone's listening uh, to this episode in the States, which I hope they are, um, we made an episode just before Christmas of Let's Talk Social Work, where I interviewed um, a member of the House of Lords, um, a guy called Lord Alf Dubbs. And we really look at UK immigration policy and the work that Alf has done in campaigning for the rights of unaccompanied asylum seeking children. So I'd, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. Margaret, uh, immigration, have you any thoughts on, on what Mel's been saying? Uh, just that uh, a comprehensive immigration reform is needed. And I think what, you know, today is actually the day where they're rolling out, the administration is rolling out their initiatives around immigration. But a lot of them are these executive orders aimed at rolling back what Trump did. So I think um, those are, are, are critical, critically important 
And, um, you know, they're going to have to figure out what to do about the border. And I don't think they have yet figured out how they're going to handle the issues uh, on the border. And so, again, I think it's this issue of a, of a task force that makes people nervous about will it, will it be kicked down the road. We've covered, I'm just going down my list, um, criminal justice, economic justice, political justice, immigration, health equity. The last thing I wanted to ask was about environmental justice, climate change. Um, so we've talked a lot about executive orders, and I'm going to talk about more. Um, on his first day in office, President Biden signed an executive order to reinstate the US to the Paris Climate Agreement. And um, as I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, the president intends to block development of the Keystone XL pipeline. The impacts of climate change, they're most often felt by the most vulnerable um, people, both globally, but also within the US. Um, and unsurprisingly, Biden's moves have been criticised by some members of Congress. So there's obviously going to be partisan opposition to um, Biden's agenda in relation to um, environmental justice. But does it enthuse you, um, the, the moves that he's made so far, Mel, um, in terms of NASW's um, social justice priority in terms of environmental justice? Yeah, I need to do a caveat too. We, that's one of our priorities, but full admission, we, we've not gotten as deeply into that area as we should have. Now, to answer the question, yeah, I think it's really important that the administration make a commitment to issues around environmental justice. And to your point, uh, communities of color uh, really are impacted. If we talk about health disparities, we look at the environment of many urban areas on issues of asthma and those kinds of things. The classic uh, case of the uh, Flint, Michigan water crisis was about yes. four years ago or so ago. Uh, that there has to be, first of all, some regulatory uh, um, regulations in place that do protect the environment, where the Trump administration and other Republican administrations were so anti-regulation, they just sort of, it's caught blanche for a lot of industrial folks to just to, to uh, do anything they want to do. So that there is a commitment by the administration uh, really rejoining the international uh, climate change uh, uh, conferences and, and the like. So I, I think that when you look at where they're going and where we've been, there is at least a commitment to uh, re-regulating and also go further than that, doing some protections to deal with vulnerable populations. Yeah, I thought the environmental justice, I thought the whole environmental package that he laid out was incredibly ambitious and surprisingly uh, so. I thought on the on the environmental justice, there are a lot of groups that are on the ground that are trying to do things in particular places around environmental justice. And simply having allies at the federal level can help them in the work that they're doing. So that might be one of the most important things that they can do is, is, is to have that ear in Washington and figure out what levers they can help them pull to make them more powerful at the local level. But I have to say, you know, uh, a lot, the environment, this is where the rubber meets the road in the United States, the oil and gas industry. You know, making that transition away from a fossil fuel economy, those people are so powerful. They have so much money in politics that it's very hard to move forward on this. But nonetheless, we just saw that General Motors said, what is it, by 2030? Five, all of their cars are going to be electric. So it's a surprising area where every once in a while there's some movement forward that's incredibly surprising. And it just you brings, know, sorry, I was going to say it brings us back to Senator Manchin and uh, in terms of the his, his uh, you know, West Virginia, it's a big coal state and Trump obviously made a lot of pledges in terms of bringing coal back. So sorry, Margaret, I cut you off. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, Trump kept doing all these things on the environment that said, so, Oh, they've changed the way showers work. The, the light bulbs are horrible. You know, they tried to make these little things about everyday life that he's ruining the life as you know it. So, uh, you know, and I don't know how much, uh, how many people really supported that kind of thing, but it, it, just, it just shows, you know, it goes into every aspect of people's lives and there's so much money involved in it that... Uh, I am very, very 
uh, curious to see how this will, you know, what they'll able be able to get done. That argument, though, about ruining life as you know it, I mean... Where do you see what is down the line if we don't make the change? You know, it's not going to be it's not going to be the same. Yeah. Um, Margaret, Mel, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking to you both. Um, this has been fantastic. Yeah. I've learned a lot. Um, is there anything you'd like to, to share before we finish? You know, uh, how you're feeling about the next four years? I know we've covered an awful lot of policy areas, but, um, you know, are you optimistic? Yeah, I guess I'm optimistic. Actually, I became much more optimistic once Georgia <laughs> happened. November yes, happened yes. and Georgia happened. That that buoyed a lot of us. So there is there are opportunities here. It's not pie in the sky. It's not saying everything's going to be rosy, but certainly far better than the opposite would have been. So there is optimism. I think that all of us just have to stay committed to being involved. And I think NESW certainly is committed to doing it. I want to thank you, Andy, for a, a great session. It is very relaxing. Oh, thanks, Mel. It's been a pleasure. And Margaret, too, working with uh, being, being on the podcast with Margaret has been great. Thank you, Mel. That's really kind. I would say that I, too, am uh, guardedly optimistic. And I think sort of the, the Mel said the key word, uh, which is that there's opportunities. And nothing is going to happen sort of automatically. And there's going to be pushback. But there are going to be opportunities. And so this kind of need to continue all of this grassroots activity that brought about the change in administration is going to have to continue if, if we can really take advantage of those opportunities. And uh, I will also echo my uh, Thanks, uh, Andy and Malik. This has really been a fun and informative uh, podcast. I think you know a lot more about American politics and policy than many Americans do. Right. That's really that's really kind. Thank you, Mel. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you. Can we do this? We'll do this again. We'll do this again. Sure. Sure. Four years time. Bye. Bye bye. Take care.